lot of the symptoms we suffer from, depression and anxiety and negative self-image and, and, and a loss of belief in our own effectiveness, come when we forget that we are telling a story and we believe that we're simply describing reality. We, we say these things about ourselves, about things we regret or things we believe we're not good at or failures we may have had. And that becomes the story of our lives without our understanding that it is a story and that we could tell a better and different story. And a story that included all the evidence, including the good experiences that we've had and, and the ways in which we've succeeded. So I think embracing narrative can be a way of escaping these self-fulfilling prophecies. If we believe that we're unlovable and unattractive, we will make it so. Welcome to the News Flash Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the uh, extraordinarily well, should I say well-traveled? Are you well-traveled? No, no you're not. <laughs> I, I well more than some more than some but but I, I i don't think i consider myself like super well traveled no mm, yes well in the uh one thing of, of, t- of today's wonderful return guest jonathan clark uh, i can i can say we said asked him if he was well traveled and he's like not really i've been to 20 countries and i was like <laughs> very very that, good yes yes <laughs> See, it, it all it all depends on your on your view, I guess. What what you think is well traveled. But one thing I will say is, I feel like doing this podcast is a form of travel because we talk to people overseas all the time from mm-hmm. who, and, and who've had different life experiences and and we talk on different topics. So, mm-hmm. in a way, I feel like this is travel for me. Yeah. So you you like explore uh, bigotry of the world, you know. <laughs> you 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 talk to you know, turfs and, and just, you know, white supremacists and other, that's what you're telling me. Yeah, that you proud like, boys. Proud boys. you like, you want to talk to all these people in different countries. Former proud boys, I should say. Former proud boys. But mainly people who, who are offensive and should be cancelled. And that's what you like. <laughs> it's, so. it's like some ghastly tour. Like if, if that was a physical tour, you could imagine the, the movie it would be, it would be like Sailor or something. You'd go from, <laughs> from one, one awful white supremacist rally to, I don't know, some, Tortured dungeon somewhere. Yeah, yes, I can picture <laughs> it. I can picture it. Am I well travelled? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not embarrassingly. I'm parochial, and um, you know, I've just uh, like to get get away more. But you know, it's it's. Uh, it's all about the cash, though. You know, I mean, we we would be more well travelled if we had a lot of cash. Yeah, you're right. That is that is a, a big thing now. And, and with the kid as well, like it does mm. change. Like, got oh, this trip But again, up. if you've got the cash, it doesn't matter. The nanny comes with you, you know. I know, I know. And then you like try and proposition her on the, uh, on the cruise. <laughs> oh, or is that not – are we not thinking the <laughs> – That's not where I was going, but – Yeah, or neither know. was I. I was just uh, – you know. Anyway, anyway, uh, moving on, moving on. Well, if you want to help us with our travel ambitions, uh, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me a Coffee platform. Any donation uh, there is very much appreciated. But in addition to that, we would love it if you could leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. You can follow us on X and Instagram. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about the show you liked. Now, word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends and let's get into it. Return guest Jonathan Clark is a contributing editor of City Journal. He's a critic and essayist, a lawyer by training and profession. Jonathan has spent more than 20 years working in the New York offices of two large firms. He divides his time between uh, Brooklyn and Vero Beach, Florida. Jonathan, welcome back to The New Flesh. Thanks very much for having me. It's nice to be with you again. So, Jonathan... Perhaps you could give us a dispatch from New York. It's been a little while since we, we, we've caught up. Uh, we're interested to hear what New Yorkers are, are worried about right now from your, from your perspective. Immigration, law and order, what's the scuttlebutt? Well, I struck a pretty pessimistic note the last time I was here. Uh, I complained about the subways and I complained about crime. And, and there's been some good news since then. Um, shootings, which were spiking the last time I was here, are under control and, and actually trending downward in New York. And uh, the federal government and the, and the state of New York stepped in with some uh, uh, funds for the subways, which allowed the subway to subway system to close a pretty significant uh, deficit. Those are both good news. Um, the migrant issue is going to be an ongoing drag on the city's finances. We are spending an enormous amount of money to settle and house um, the, the migrants that are that are coming uh, from the border, and 
So of course that's money that can't be sent, spent somewhere else, um, whether it be on, um, on housing or, or other initiatives that the mayor might have in mind. I feel, I'm feeling a little bit better than I did when I was with you last, but the problems are significant. I think Mayor Adams has the right agenda. I don't know that he necessarily has the broad support he needs or, or frankly, the, the dynamic personality or the, or the energy to, to carry it off. But I still remain cautiously optimistic about him as a mayor. Has the the immigration issue uh, has it? Because um, obviously, online the narrative is, oh, you know, these the the a lot of immigrants have been bust to bust into to New York and and things like that, and you know, this is has you know dragged the 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 lefties you know into the real world. They've had to get some of their common sense back and. And and react against this is that a bit confected in a in in a way that that narrative? I do think people can see the fiscal impact that this is going to have on the city, and and just if you ride the subways, you see uh, women with infants and young children on their backs walking through, trying to sell little bits of candy or whatever to raise money, and and I think these are recently settled New Yorkers from. Mexico and Honduras and places like that. And it's, it's hard for them to uh, get traction in the city. So I think people can see the problem. And I think that Mayor Adams has complained pretty vocally about the drag this is placing on our finances. We like to think well of ourselves in New York in terms of our generosity and the welcome mat that we put out for immigrants and uh, but the city, of course, does has, have its limits. And as I say, we have a lot of other uses for that money. So I think right now we're at an inflection point in terms of public sentiment. Everyone wants to be welcoming. Everyone understands why the migrants are coming. On balance, I think Latino immigration works for America and works for New York. But even a dynamic economy like Amer- like New York City's can only absorb so many new faces and that may be what we're, what we're running up against yes well uh it is a a a, a big topic and i'm sure we'll come back to it next time we it, it will roll on <laughs> next time we chat but the two pieces we want to talk about today uh that you've written about uh, uh the, the first one is about it's about travel which we want to cover first it's called over there tourism and the imperial imperial self uh, an exploration of which I, I think it was an exploration of our motivations to travel to far-flung places and whether it's possible to be changed or achieve transcendence by such jaunts. Um, the second piece we're, we're going to dip into is uh, is about Freud, uh, and and both of these pieces uh, um, will be available uh, very very soon. Uh, we can we can talk a bit more about that. But firstly, about travel. Uh, Jonathan, before we get into some some of the details uh, of of the piece, are you a well traveled person? Do you like travel? I've been a lot of places. I don't think of myself as well traveled for the following reason: I, I've been to fifteen or twenty countries, probably, but only for usually for a week at a time. And since I'm stuck inside my own language, I don't speak any language but English. I don't know that these week long visits allow me much access into the cultures that I'm visiting. So I probably come home relatively unchanged. That may have to do, have something to do with my temperament. I'm a, I'm a cautious, uh, narrow kind of person. I don't easily give myself over to the flow of experience, especially as I've gotten older. It's one thing to do that when you're 25, you know, you go someplace and you can go out and you can immerse yourself. But as you get older, you want to stay closer to the hotel. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me. But, but you know, this, these experiences that people are having where they go and they dance with the native villagers and they smoke <laughs> peyote with the tribal elders, that stuff's not happening to me. I mean, I'm, 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 uh, seem, to be, seem to be tethered to the lobby of, of whatever nice hotel I'm staying in. And so I don't know that I'm getting as much out of travel as other people are. But extrapolating from my own experience leads me to wonder whether people are having these transformational experiences that they like to like to tell us about. Uh, so your question was, am I well traveled? Yes and no. I've been a lot of places. I've tried to get out of my uh, out of my little bubble. But 
what I've gained from these experiences, sometimes I wonder. Mm. It's yeah, it's interesting. Your your piece sort of grapples with the idea of 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 uh, whether whether travel is transform is a transformative experience for people, and whether you know whether people only see it sort of as tra- as as uh, transformative in in retrospect. You know, when they come home and contemplate things, when they're actually there, uh, their experiences are often not are not great. And I can attest to this too. Like I went to, to Europe on a big trip for my honeymoon. And I think, I don't think we, we quite planned it well enough. We went to too many places and didn't spend long enough in, in, in each place. And we wanted to kind of see as much as we could. And, and I don't think we quite had that immerse, immersive experience that we could have had if we just stayed in maybe one or two places. Um, do you think, do you think people, uh, are, are traveling well like like you uh, you know th- there's there's obviously a technique to it or there's there's a way of planning it that makes it better i think it's hard to travel well because the places that you visit especially the well visited places florence and and venice and paris they have an agenda for you and their agenda is around getting the dollars out of your pocket and keeping you within a certain kind of official experience and i see this when i go around Manhattan and I see visitors from Europe and South America in New York, they're not having an authentic experience of New York for the most part. And they don't look very happy. Uh, They look insecure and preyed upon and lost. And unless they know people here who can help them get out of Times Square, I think they go home no wiser than they were when they came and a good deal poorer. And I can't imagine that I'm having any different experience when I go to to these places, to Florence or Berlin or Venice. I have trouble getting out of the well-worn paths that the tourism board has laid out for me. I'm sure there are ways to do it. I don't know that I'm succeeding, and I don't know that most people are, are succeeding when they travel. I think your point is a good one. It's better to try and have one authentic experience somewhere than to try to do two days here and two days there. That may be one thing I've learned. I was fortunate enough to spend 28 days in London once. That's the longest experience I've ever had abroad. And and by day 21 or 22, I had gone native a little bit. Now, this is an English-speaking country, so I didn't have the language barrier. But if you can stay a little while, I think that helps. Well, here's a, here's a quote from your uh, article that pertains to this. Quote, most of us ha- uh, have to be have to content ourselves with brief getaways, which often means travelling the well-worn paths. The six-day, five-night package tour is one of the signature hustles of modern life, like variable annuities and dietary supplements. It is a conspiracy between the travel company, which wants to sell you an experience as antiseptic and reproducible as mouthwash, and the host cities that want to keep you penned in like uh, a head of beef cattle. Close quote. Uh, I think that encapsulates it there. Uh, I find myself uh, constantly working when I go on these trips to avoid the cookie cutter experience like you've just described. Uh, And I find Times Square to be uh, an existential horror. Uh, When I went to New York, it was... It was nightmarish. I, I just can't. Actually, anything like that, it, it, I had the same reaction to. Um, uh, you know, I think the only, there's nothing worse also than realizing when you've been suckered into a tourist trap. Um, the only, the only caveat I'd say to that is in Vietnam, the tourist traps. Um, one of the tourist traps we went to, they let you shoot AK-47s. Um, so, <laughs> and if there's an AK-47 involved, I think that sort of changes a little bit. But mostly, it's pretty, pretty boring. Um, so, uh, but then again, uh, as we've already talked about, the barriers of language and the convenience of these prepackaged experiences are often so great uh, that it's hard to break through. Um, but I also find, I want to get your reaction to this, but I find that when I explain to people, as you just said, you need to maybe know someone from New York to, to, to guide you through. But when I explain to someone who's going on a trip, you know, how they could maybe get some real experience and break out of it. I just find that people aren't really interested in hearing about that and that I come across sounding intense and a bit weird. One of the themes of my essay and one of the things that provoked me to write it was that I'm skeptical of our motives in traveling. I don't know whether Australians are like this. I think Australians might be more authentically interested in the rest of the world. But in America, overseas travel involves a lot of class signaling. It's a strong marker of class status in America. This is a very rich country, and 
plumbers have a lot of money here and people that own small businesses have a lot of money. And if you're a college graduate, especially a graduate of a posh college in America, you may strain to signal your class status because you don't have any more money than anybody else does necessarily. And one of the most efficient ways people signal class status in America is with overseas travel, principally to Europe, but for people who really, really want to signal not only their class status, but their enlightenment. Traveling to far-flung places does that very well. And so I wonder, do we want the experiences or do we just want to talk about having them? Do we just want to tell our friends, oh, I visited Borneo, I visited Sydney, I visited Shanghai. I don't know. I'm skeptical of my own motives and, and therefore I'm skeptical of everyone else's motives as well. This is how travel works in America. And I think perhaps England and Australia have have more genuine and sincere traditions of, of travel. But but here, you know, first of all, we travel as consumers, as Americans. We want to buy things. We want to flex our muscle economically. And then we want to come home and tell our friends about it. What we do while we're on location almost seems like a secondary thought sometimes. It's interesting you talk about about motivation. Uh, and, and I've got an example here. My, my wife's friend has been going to Bali on holiday every year for over 15 years. And personally, I'm I'm very interested in the in the gamelan music of Bali. Although I'm yet to visit Bali myself, I've been studying the music of 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 Bali for five or six years now. And my wife's friend was oblivious to Bali even having any traditional music and didn't know what I was talking about when I asked her if she's seen any gamelan performances. Now I, I find this found this whole situation frustrating, and it really got me thinking about her motivations. And th- this is kind of a, a trope that happens. Uh, in Australia, we often travel to Bali because it's it's fairly close, and it's you know that the, the climate's good. Uh, you get lots of cheap stuff. You know, you can get 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 massages for an hour for five dollars. So I guess you know going to to a country like that and living like a king for a week or so is seems to be a motivation of some people in Australia. I mean, are you are you seeing that sort of thing where people travel to to places because it's cheap and they can have this kind of king like experience? We do that here. We go to the Caribbean here. We go to Barbados and Bermuda and places like that. And yes, you can pretend that you're a rich person for a week or two. Uh, you know, uh, really, a middle-class American can can live extraordinarily well in these places and can have servants in one way or another for a week. This is not something that we can afford to do, or that's really within our tradition at home. But it's you. You know, you can pretend to be the governor of the Raj or something when you travel for a week or two as an American. And, and, and these tours are sold to us in that way by Puerto Rico and, and Barbados and, and places like that. It's, it's lived like a king for a week. And in that circumstance, of course, you're not having an authentic experience at all because you're, you're largely staying inside your luxury hotel and having people, you know, bring you cocktails with umbrellas in them and all that. And that's, look, that's, if people want to do that, and take it easy for a week and and get a suntan i think that's fine but i but that's not travel in in the sense that we're talking about uh, you're not looking for an experience you're you're looking for a an economic advantage i think do you think that uh another aspect to this might be people's aversion to discomfort and uh misunderstanding and in, in one of the quotes in in from uh, one of the thinkers you mentioned talks about um the the inability to effectively communicate or to be in a, to be displaced in 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 an area and uh and to, particularly when you're lonely or you know alone or whatever is is quite a um uh dispiriting experience uh and and troubling do you think that 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 package of 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 things is probably something that most people uh, would be trying to stay away from, even though, well, I mean, I look at it and I go, well, from my perspective, you know, certain amounts of those things, are, that's the trip to me. Like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the moments where you've missed been, uh, you know, gone out on a limb or been misunderstood or, or got, or heaven forbid, been bored or made a mistake, gotten lost, I think mm. is the thing. The horror of getting lost today, I think is is palpable so like the other day i was i was in the, the shops uh with my wife and my um my child and my father-in-law 
we we went in separate directions and i felt i was panicked we, we were all calling we were call, we were calling each other on our phones after three minutes and i was like imagine if you're in <laughs> you know you're in uh another a, a country and and you're lost so do you think that the, the, these sorts of things are a reason why people are like oh god i don't want to do that yeah i think you're on to something i quoted paul theroux the travel writer in the article as saying something to the effect that travel is only pleasurable in retrospect and you hit on this this theme earlier i can remember being in Paris at the famed Longchamp racetrack and the racing day was over and my father and I needed to get a, this was in the pre Uber days. We needed a taxi to take us back to our hotel. We couldn't figure out how to do it. And so I tried out my French on some race goers and it was a disaster. People couldn't have been, people could not, people could not have been nicer. The, the reputation that the French have for rudeness is undeserved in my experience. People, were delighted to try to assist us, but my French was so awful that they just gave me the, eventually they gave me the Gallic shrug and, and wandered off because I could not make myself understood. I remember this with pleasure because it was funny and I eventually did get back to my hotel, but in the moment it was uncomfortable. I'm standing there stammering and sweating and making a fool of myself and feeling that I should have stayed home and why did I believe that I spoke French when evidently I speak no French at all and so yes it was ple- it's pleasant in retrospect but at the time it was terrible and as I've grown older I'm less and less open to these experiences and you're right this is what travel is travel is is openness to experience positive and negative. We can get on the Viking River longship and have a very curated experience traveling up and down the Danube and never be hot and never be cold and never be hungry and never be unable to find a bathroom and never be misunderstood. And that's not travel. Um, Travel requires of the traveler a certain openness to experience. And perhaps I've just lost that openness as, as I've gotten older. I do find it more difficult to be good spirited about the inevitable misunderstandings of travel. Maybe this is more of a Jonathan problem than a than a than a problem with travel per se. But I'm enjoying my trips less than I used to, and I was wondering why. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the essay. Well, interesting. This is this is fascinating, Jonathan, because um, uh, I went. Uh, I wonder if language is is a big part of it, or or a deep connection with culture that you develop. Uh, on the mainland, which you do talk about at the end, end of your so you say maybe I should have just if you want to learn about French, maybe you should yeah read some read about French culture or read uh, history and, and connect with it there. I think maybe a combination of the two might might be. I think it's, for me, it's about finding a culture that um, you connect with on a deep level. And for me, it's it's Japan. I went I went there uh, maybe. 2018 or something i studied a little bit in high school went there in 2018 i had like a i had a a spiritual moment staring at the city uh, above and i I realized i I felt like i was home you know what i mean and uh, which is a very strange thing for a painfully white man to say uh (laughs) it makes me sound like all of the all of those embarrassing middle-aged men like uh who are interested in like you know shogun and all that sort of stuff but um uh, yeah, I, I found that that, that interest in, in the culture uh, and then studying the language, uh, to me, the language is the key. And I always tell people that. I always go, if you can, learning the language or, or even rudimentary, elementary, whatever, is the difference between you going there and being uh, funneled into some tourist trap. And then I've had, I went on a trip alone only a couple of years ago, and I'm not a young man. But I went a couple of years ago alone. Uh, a bit difficult now with my with my wife and my kid, you know. But but that trip alone, I had some astounding experiences. Uh, I was in a beach town walking. I was just telling Ricky about this, and someone said, "Oh, excuse me, are you lost?" And uh, this guy was taking me back to the, the the train station, just helping me out. And then eventually, I just said to him in his language, "I said, oh, he didn't seem busy." I said, "Do, do you want to get a coffee?" <laughs> And then he said, "Yeah." And then we had a coffee, and we ended up catching up. Another experience from that that uh, trip, I the World Cup was on, and I just found some bar to go to, and it was like a lock in that you pay to go in. And Japan was in the World Cup, and that night I cut to the end of the night, and and I'm you know weirdly friends with all these people in 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 the bar. I mean, 
So I, I don't know. I wonder if, if um, it, it's, a, it's a posture that, that comes. There are certainly a lot of places that I went, I've, I've been to where I, exactly as you say, I've just gone, I'm on the outside here and I don't like any of it. <laughs> but, but I wonder if, do you think maybe language or, or a decision, internal decision to go, this is my, as, uh, in my year of yes, uh, maybe that could have something to do with it. I think it has everything to do with it. And as I said, I, I'm not sure that I'm cultivating the kind of openness to experience that you need to have to have a good, a good visit to places. I do think it's worthwhile learning at least a little bit of tourist French or Spanish or Japanese if you can, if you have time before you go. I've been sour about travel in this conversation, but I've had some good experiences. Look, I visited Saigon for five or six days and it was fantastic. And it could be that Vietnam is new enough as a tourist destination for Westerners that they haven't laid down the tracks yet to keep you within certain kinds of received experiences. Maybe it's maybe maybe places that are that are newer as tourist destinations are are easier easier to penetrate. But yes, I mean part of the problem is one of temperament that some of us are more open ex- to experience than others. Some of us are willing to take more risks than others. As I said, I'm I'm not I'm not having those experiences where I'm I feel that I've gotten past the barriers, but I'm not sure that the problem is with travel as much as it is with my increasing aversion to discomfort, maybe my increasing self-importance, I don't know. But yeah, I I wish I was a little bit more open and I think I would have a better experience. Uh, the attitude you take on the airplane with you does make a difference, as you say. But the uh, perhaps one thing you could do, Jonathan, is uh, not uh, expose your American imperialism by saying Saigon instead of Ho Chi Minh City. <laughs> That's one thing well, you could you. do. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone there says Saigon. Right. So if you say Ho Chi Minh City to people in Saigon, they look at you like, that's not to say that they're not, I mean, it's very strange to be there. The, the museum. Did you go to the museum? The Museum of American War Atrocities? Yes. <laughs> I went to the Museum of American War Atrocities. It was 101 degrees. I went to the Museum of American War Atrocities. I wandered out, and then everyone wanted to take their picture with me because actually they love Americans in Saigon. Yeah. They, well, love is part of it. Uh, they're... Uh, they remember what happened, of course, and uh, not with not with any not with any gratitude, I assure you. But uh, with, with a, a a good deal of of probably uh, justified resentment and anger about about what happened there, um, and the role that America played in the in the Vietnam War. But and yet they like Americans. There's some kind of natural affinity between Americans and Vietnamese that I can't explain. But it's definitely it's definitely there, and I had a I had a marvelous experience being there. The food is really good, mm. and the people are beautiful, and those two things go a long way for me. If you can get a good meal, and and the people are 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 warm, and uh, you know that helps a lot. Well, there's another great quote from your piece uh, that I'd like to read out here uh, about Europe and, and and traveling in the 19th century. Uh, so, quote. Beginning in the late 19th century and continuing through World War II, wealthy young Americans packed steamer trunks and took the Grand Tour, which typically began in London, traversed the continent and ended perhaps in Greece. Americans still travel to Europe in enormous numbers, but I suspect that so uh, Eurocentric an itinerary would now be seen as morally naive. Uh, What's really chic is to visit some secondary or tertiary nation of Asia or Africa or to live among indigenous people, perhaps to build them a well or a sturdy schoolhouse, perhaps, end quote. I I love this idea of the grand tour. You know, what what do you think these 19th century American travelers got got out of this tour? and, and, And what do you think a modern American would get from it? The grand tour was really a leisure class tradition. So it was something that you did when you were just out of school or perhaps when you were just married and this was for people who didn't work so they could go for 6 months and they could pack a lot of steamer trunks and and take their maids or valets with them what they got out of it i don't know again class signaling is part of it but seeing the world was harder in those days it took a long time to get anywhere and you might get one trip in your lifetime, even for a relatively affluent person. So for them to take 
six months and see everything once, I suppose, made a kind of sense. It's so different now. I can be in London in seven hours if I leave for Kennedy Airport right now. And so as a middle-class person, I can travel in a way that was only available to very rich people in the late 19th century. What we get out of it now, I don't know. Perhaps the convenience of travel takes some of the allure away or makes it seem more common or domesticated. The Grand Tour tradition is is dead now. People are traveling, I suppose, in different ways, uh, and maybe they're seeking different things. When I think of the Grand Tour, I think of uh, like Henry James, you know, novels, uh, <laughs> and I think there's even one sort of novella or is it short story where it, you're on on one of these tours with, with a character. I forget the name, uh, but. Uh, you know, speaking of the Eurocentrism that that uh, I, I think comes up in this, it's so fascinating how influential Europe has been to you know, England and America, and how unfashionable uh, that is now. Um, uh, I mean, you could just take—we just spoke about languages. Look at—I uh, feel like if you if you had a, a if you were teaching French or German at, at a school today, um, there'd be questions, uh, you know, uh, about <laughs> about that. <laughs> Even here, like you know, people would be like, uh, it, the, "The connection that that we that, that that we had with with Europe." Because I mean, I suppose there's a flattening. You can tell us what you think, but the this, the, the intersectional flattening of of European or, or just into this category of white is so interesting because as you as you would discover coming here or going to America, or going to England. Um, for, for your your twenty eight days, uh, it was a markedly different culture. Am, am I am I right? Different from America, yes. I mean, subtly different, but it would take it would take a long time to feel at home. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's it seems that this connection with Europe has been, uh, I don't know, like forcibly uh, broken. Demographic change in America means that people of European ancestry are now no longer the majority in the United States, and among younger people, that's especially true. And so it's, I suppose it's natural that rather than looking back to Europe as Americans of European ancestry once did, that more and more people will look back to the places that, that their families came from. So part of this is is just a natural shift in demographics and affinities and, and all that. Um, but yes, because of uh, anti-colonialist narratives that are dominant in American culture right now on the left more than on the right, Europe is suspect and people are not necessarily anxious to invoke their European heritage. And in fact, one of the things you see now is in North America, and I'm not sure if this happens in Australia, but people are periodically outed in North America for claiming indigenous ancestry that is not authentic. Pocahontas. As uh, yeah. <laughs> as the Donald yeah. famously said, yeah, don't don't they call them pretendians? I'm not a not a Donald Trump fan, but Focahontas was a pretty good shot that he took at Elizabeth <laughs> Warren. I, I did think that was I did think that was funny. There have been a number of these cases now of of uh, academics who are teaching Native American studies tenured professorships, and and it's found ultimately that they're that they grew up in families of European ancestry and have no authentic connection. Now, there's there's no reason why a person of European ancestry couldn't teach Native American studies in principle, but this is where you get into the identity trap. Once you claim it, once you say, oh, I'm of indigenous ancestry, then you're vulnerable to being called out. And it's interesting that that people are in flight from their European ancestry to a certain extent. I wonder whether that's something that's going to stay with us, or maybe that's uh, a, a high tide that that, uh, that will ebb a little bit. And as we move out of this particularly fraught political moment in the United States, maybe we can get past the identity politics a little bit. This is something we talked about last time. But um, yes, we have had these cases in America of people claiming to be African-American or claiming to be Native American in order to get some kind of advantage in their professional lives or culturally or or just to signal their own virtue i suppose it's a odd phenomenon 
Yes, well, in the meantime, uh, hopefully it is a high tide, uh, as you say, Jonathan. And uh, in the meantime, I think we should travel more and, and certainly get uh, uh, more uncomfortable. But in the time we've, we've got left, we're going to make a hard pivot to, from, from uh, the external to the, to the internal. Uh, <laughs> head towards the mind. Uh, now you've got a, a an interest in psychoanalysis, and and you've been um, writing about it recently, written essay which we've talked about uh, just one. But um, I, I have to ask, you know, what 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 is your interest in in psychoanalysis? And uh, because it's you, you do come across as someone who's more than a casual fan. Uh, I think Freud got a mention in the travel essay that we that we mentioned he came up uh so perhaps you could start there my day job when i'm not writing is that of a lawyer in a in a large firm in new york i've done this work for more than 20 years now and a few years ago i got a little bored with what i was doing as a lawyer and i flirted with the idea of changing professions there is a psychoanalytic institute in union square in new york that's walking distance from my office so out of curiosity and boredom i walked down there and started taking some classes I'd been a casual reader of Freud and commentary about Freud for a long time. There was something about Freud and about the culture of psychoanalysis that I found attractive and even seductive. So I started to take these classes and, and was drawn for a time deeper and deeper into this world of psychoanalytic studies. It's an unfashionable intellectual tradition now in the United States, but there are still these psychoanalytic institutes in, in major American cities, New York and Washington and, and Boston and Seattle and elsewhere, where you can go and study. And some of them will train people outside uh, medicine and social work. So look, I'm a lawyer. All I have is a law degree. They were willing to train me. And for a time, I really considered shifting to be an analyst as as my professional work. And, and ultimately, I gave it up. But I was drawn deep enough into the culture and it left enough of a mark on me that I wanted to write about it and try to make some sense of it. Now, is, is, is there a meaningful difference between a psychologist, a therapist, and a psychoanalyst? Because uh, these terms, they, they seem interchangeable, but I, but I feel like this is not the case. And, you know, I, most of my exposure to this comes from the 90s sitcom Frasier. So, you know, <laughs> excuse me if I, you know, if this is, this is a basic question. I think Frasier was a psychoanalyst or was at least analytically trained because he made some Freud jokes in the show, if I remember correctly. So psychoanalysis is, is just one tradition, one psychotherapeutic tradition. It was the dominant tradition in America for about 30 or 35 years. After World War II, most psychiatrists who were, were training and doing uh, residencies were trained in Freudian ideas. That's less true now, much less true now. And there are competing traditions. Cognitive behavioral therapy is, is now the dominant tradition in American psychotherapy. So yes, I agree. It's, it's a lot of acronyms. And, and for, the, for the casual observer, it can be hard to tell the difference. But if we think of psychoanalysis as being associated with Freud and, and with a few core ideas about the mind and about our mental processes and, and the way we form identities, we can talk about what those are. But yes, it's 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 a formerly dominant tradition in American psychiatry that is now uh, somewhat unfashionable. But if, if if we're to believe what what Hollywood puts out, everyone in America has a therapist. Do, do you know a lot of people with therapists or, or psychologists? In New York, almost anyone of a certain class status has been to therapy uh, or, or is on their way. I mean, they're either coming from their therapist or, or they're on their way if you meet them on the street. So, yes, I mean, uh, I can't imagine that people in Omaha, Nebraska are going to the psychotherapist a lot. But in, it, in urban centers, it's, it's, um, it's, it's something that's uh, very openly discussed and, and very widely accepted and, and a, almost a rite of passage for, for young adults in cities like this. There's no stigma associated with it in, in a place like New York. Again, it might be different elsewhere. And is, again, is that, is that a class thing? Is that signaling your class that you, you're, you know, you're on your way to the therapist? It is signaling your class in, in part because it can be pretty expensive to go. Psychoanalytic treatment is typically not covered by insurance or is covered only to a very limited extent, after which you can be paying anywhere from 75 up to $350 for a 45-minute session in a city like New York. Most people can't afford it. So yes, uh, treatments like CBT, which are covered by insurance, are affordable for ordinary working people. 
but these more bespoke kinds of treatments that that people sometimes pursue require real resources. Mm. Well, you mentioned uh, CBT there. How, how is that different from from psycho, psychoanalysis? The insurance companies like CBT because it's focused on symptoms and it's focused on returning the patient to to work and social life as efficiently as possible. The CBT practitioner isn't necessarily going to ask about your relationship with your mother, which is the, <laughs> the classic Freudian move. And they're not necessarily interested in the deepest sources of your interpersonal conflicts. They're really interested in identifying what are the cognitive errors that you're making right now that are leading you to to unhappiness or to a negative self-image. They want to challenge those thoughts and they want to correct them as quickly as as they can. So for instance, if I believe that nobody likes me or I'm unpopular or I'm obnoxious to people, the psychoanalyst might want to look at my childhood experiences, particularly my relationships with my parents, to see how an attitude like that was formed. What, how did I form this belief about myself that seems so unshakable, even in the face of evidence to the contrary? The CBT practitioner is going to be focused on taking apart this implicit claim that I'm making. Nobody likes me. I'm unpopular. I'm obnoxious. And push me for evidence that that claim is true. And it may be that the evidence doesn't support the claim, and then we can take it apart and get me back to a more reality-centered view of, of who I am and what my experiences are. So CBT promises essentially the same kind of relief. CBT is a tradition that is derived from psychoanalytic ideas in part, but it promises the same kind of results and the same kind of relief from neurosis without necessarily the heavy lifting and the expense and the time investment of psychoanalysis. Three sessions a week, I believe. That sounds like a lot. Three sessions a week is a lot. I have friends that go five times a week here in New York. People that are <laughs> wow. people that are really people that are really devoted to analysis and really believe in it. It's a different kind of conversation if you're going five times a week, I think. You're you're looking for I think you're almost looking for a witness at that point. Someone you know, our relationships can be pretty transitory, especially in a city like this where people come and go. You we move jobs a lot of as Americans, we relocate for work and for school. And so there may be no one in your life who has seen you and known you over over a long period, except perhaps your parents or if your parents are gone, someone you went to school with. But we suffer from a lack of these relationships. And it can be deeply meaningful for people, even if they're not getting better in any traditional way, if they're not less neurotic, even if they're not doing better at work or enjoying fulfilling romantic relationships, the analyst, I think, is providing something that is that would normally be provided in a healthy communal life that a lot of Americans just aren't getting anymore. And so the analyst at least is there every Wednesday at two or every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at two. And he or she can bear witness if nothing else. I really feel that there's a whole that psychoanalysis is filling right now that is somehow attuned to this cultural moment and that may be why psychoanalysis is having a psychoanalysis is having a little bit of a comeback or a little bit of an intellectual vogue in uh, places like New York and Boston and Chicago and Seattle because we're suffering from a particular kind of spiritual deficit that psychoanalysis promises to address well if if you are going five five times five sessions a week I mean that's a lot as as a patient I, I could see that you could fall into a trap where you you end up thinking that your therapist is 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 a good friend of yours and that you might hang out you know after the session or you might get a little bit more involved than just this sort of patient doctor relationship and it reminds me of uh, of of a nineties film. Uh, starring Bill Murray, which I was obsessed with as a kid, called "What About Bob," which is basically that happens. This 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 Bill Murray character, you know, he goes from uh, therapist to therapist, and he ends up, you know, trying to form this this friendship with them. And the therapist they don't want that, and they can't get rid of him, and so they try and try and sort of handball him off to 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 the next therapist. And uh, do, do you see that sort of happening where people sort of end up, you know, thinking they're in the in a different sort of relationship with their with their 
a therapist then then you know because the therapist is obviously trying to keep it more professional perhaps the business of the patient's feelings about the analyst and their affection for or resentment of or romantic attachment to the therapist is actually one of the things one of the bits of data that the therapist can use in the treatment. So one of the core tenets of analysis is that the patient is going to project onto the analyst certain qualities or attributes that have nothing to do with the analyst and his or her actual person, but that have to do with the patient's prior experiences of love and family and friendship and so forth. And this is information that the analyst can can use. I think there's can be a mixed motive if the analyst is doing his or her job, it, they are drawing that boundary and they're reminding the patient of what kind of relationship this is exactly. <laughs> I said to my analyst once, you know, I feel that I'm having trouble expressing myself to you honestly because I'm worried that if I say ugly things or reveal the truth about my twisted personality, you won't like me anymore. <laughs> and she waited a beat and said, what makes you think I like you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was a useful and bracing reminder that we were not friends and whether she liked me or not was actually not even relevant to the experience we were having. And we laughed about it. And, and actually I, 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 I searched our, our prior sessions in vain for, for evidence that she did like me. And I, and I came up with very little, but I was able to express myself more honestly after that, because first of all, I realized that we weren't friends. And, and second of all, she's heard everything already. So there's nothing, there's nothing so ugly or shameful that I could express that, that she hasn't heard from others. Um, but yes, of course, if people are feeling lonely or disconnected, and as I posited, the analyst is providing this somewhat synthetic or spurious sense of connection, the analyst may be reluctant to disrupt that, both because it may be a bad idea for the patient to do it, or it has to be done delicately. But also at 325 an hour, you'd like the person to keep showing up. So if they want to be your friend, then maybe you let them be your friend. I don't know. Uh, financial incentives are an uncomfortable part of the patient-analyst dynamic and, and uh, people that are critical of psychoanalysis and of the whole psychiatric edifice in America often point to these financial incentives as a, as a reason why the relationship may not be the one you think you're having. We are told, particularly since COVID, I guess, that there's an epidemic of mental illness and, and depression, uh, you know, across the world, really. Um, but definitely in, in places like Australia and, and the US and, and whatnot. Now, you're, you, the essay you, you, that we've read uh, begins with a rather shocking, uh, in a shocking way, you say, several analysts affiliated with leading New York psychoanalytic institutes committed suicide during the pandemic lockdowns of 2020 and 2021. Uh, one of these was a highly regarded teacher and analyst who has been affiliated with two such institutes, including one uh, for a time, which I took classes, close quote. So that's the place that, that, you, that you mentioned. But that is um, a, a, that's a, a hard open uh, I think for the, for that piece, um, uh, have you, have you uh, ruminated or meditated on, on why, you know what's going on here. I mean, these why are these psycho? Did these? It's more than one psycho psychoanalyst that that committed suicide. Am I right? You're right. I ultimately, uh, you are quoting from a draft version of the essay. Ultimately, in the published version, I tacked away from from that hard open and didn't wind up talking about suicide as much. In part because psychoanalysis has very little useful to say about suicide. Freud's theory of suicide was that it was introjected hostility. So we commit suicide when we actually want to murder someone else and are inhibited by cultural norms from doing so. And we turn that violent impulse uh, on ourselves, which I think is nonsense. Exotic. Really. And that's... yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's, I don't think that's what's going on. And subsequent psychoanalytic writers have, have, have written on analysis. And I just don't think that the analytic tradition has much that's useful to say about suicide as a phenomenon. I think psychoanalysts are, are human beings suff suffering from the same vulnerabilities as the rest of us. And so, yes, there were several prominent suicides, in, including um, 
one at the institute where I had taken classes uh, of a of a young, very well regarded and very talented young guy um, who who died by his own hand during the pandemic. I one of my motives in writing the essay was to solve in quotes for myself at least what had happened to this man who I had found such an intellectually dynamic and attractive personality. In the end, I took all that stuff out of the essay because we just couldn't anonymize him enough so that he would not be identifiable uh, to to readers who were curious about who he was. He's only been dead 18 months or two years, and I just didn't want to subject his family to to having him possibly identified by readers of the essay. So ultimately, I took that material out, although it did provide a point of entry, and suicide is something that's on the rise in the United States. It's it's one of a cluster of mental health problems, along with anxiety and depression and, and other forms of self-harm, drug addiction. It's hard to know whether these are all one problem or several distinct problems. But when you talk about suicide, it's a way of getting people's attention. And most of us know families that have, that have been affected by suicide, and it, it sort of centers the problem for people. So that's why I opened with the problems of suicide in my draft, even though I ultimately took it out. Well, a lot of Sigmund Freud's theories have been debunked, but but as a cultural icon, a lot of his ideas have, have have made their way into the wider cultural landscape to the point where you know people use phrases like "stop projecting on me" or perhaps John's favourite, "sometimes a cigar is just a cigar." Uh, <laughs> not not even knowing where they come from, you know, does 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 Freud hurt the continued progress of the psycho uh, psychoanalyst movement? Well, Freud as a person is both the greatest asset that psychoanalysis has because of his intellectual and cultural celebrity. And yes, he's also an impediment to the growth of psychoanalysis for that very reason. I think it might be useful for psychoanalysis to move past Freud or at least to engage in some sharper critique of of Freud or, or be more willing to talk about where Freud was wrong. But the risk in that is that by de-romanticizing him or taking him off his pedestal, you also lose some of the cultural energy around psychoanalysis in the broader public. So I think within analytic communities, people feel free to pick and choose what of Freud they believe in and what they don't believe in. But Freud as a celebrity remains important to analysis as a profession, I think. And yes, I think you put your finger on it. I think he is something of an obstacle. It's interesting. There are... so, sorry, Jonathan, we, we don't judge Michael Jordan on all the shots he missed. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and he missed a lot. So yeah. there, 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 are, there are so many things that this man contributed. I mean, there's bonkers stuff in there, but there's a, there's a, a core set of ideas that are beyond legendary. They're, they're, a, they're a storytelling that... Um, is just cuts through cultures and that and that we can try and understand ourselves and, and other people and i just feel like um i don't know like i feel like woody in um uh manhattan right like he's walking down the street and uh you know is it the diane keaton and her her partner are just bagging out everyone that he loves they're like oh norman mailer and you know they're just going and i feel like freud would be in that list too and and woody's just going i don't know i think uh, i love i love all those people you just mentioned you know like so that's how i feel like woody in that scene you know about freud i, go, I think he's great i think those things are these things are solid god i mean can we improve them yes but there's some of them are just so perfect even today well that's right and there's a reason why a lot of intelligent people are still drawn to Freud. He's an enormously engaging and seductive and charming writer. So when you engage his ideas firsthand, he is attractive. And the explanatory power of some of the core concepts remains very strong. It's easy to pick on him because there are three or four ideas that that we could talk about, penis envy and, and other things that seem ri- pretty risible now. But yes, um, the core concepts are interesting and are worth talking about. I think Freud is almost as useful as a philosopher or as a literary figure uh, as he is as a psychotherapeutic figure. It, it may be that there are cultural dividends to be gained from reading Freud or philosophical dividends to be gained from reading Freud above and beyond what may be going on in treatment rooms. That's my thesis anyway. 
Uh, well, I think that, um, you know, you also say in, in, in your essay, you say that like, you know, if we're still, let me just see if I can find it here. It was a great, great little quote. Um, if we're still arguing about Freud, it is aptly because nothing very satisfying has come along to replace him. Uh, you know, for, as we say, Freud might have some 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 outdated ideas, uh, uh, but the drugs we've ushered in to fill his place uh, have not proved to be that successful. You uh, you, you talk about that in, in your essay. Do you want to elaborate, perhaps? Well, in the late '80s and early '90s, when the first SSRIs came on the market, we really thought they were potentially a, a magic bullet for the treatment of major depression. And there's an American analyst, uh, a trained Freudian, in fact, Peter Kramer, who's a professor at Brown University here, who wrote a book called Listening to Prozac that became an enormous bestseller in America, in which he recounted these extraordinary anecdotes of, of people suffering from really crippling depression who had come to him and had been treatment to resi- resistant to traditional talk therapy treatments and who experienced astonishing recoveries uh, using, using Prozac. And then as Prozac was subjected to more and more double-blind studies, it was found that the uh, effect of Prozac was limited. Not everybody gained any benefits. Some people gained transitory benefits. Some people suffered some symptom relief, and but not complete relief. And so the hope that was invested in Prozac and in the SSRIs as a class by the by the psychiatric community and by and by people suffering from major depression, which is which amounts to many millions of people in a country the size of the United States, proved to be a little bit of a false hope. And so we had to reset a little bit and try to think about other other ways to treat to treat major depression and anxiety and, and, and other common psychiatric illnesses. It looks like Prozac and and other SSRIs like Zoloft and Paxil, and people will have heard these heard these names. Um, they're not useless, but they certainly are nothing like a uh, useful treatment for everyone. And uh, to that to that extent, there was a sort of a boom and bust cycle around the SSRIs. Well, there's this fantastic quote uh, from that you, that you you have in in the piece. It's from a modern psychoanalyst who I'd never heard of, but their book his book sounds uh, absolutely fascinating. Uh, Stephen Gross. Uh, in your piece, uh, this quote here, this really start, struck a chord with me. Quote. All sorrows can be born if you put them into a story or tell a story about them. But if we cannot find a way of telling our story, our story tells us. We dream these stories, we develop symptoms, or we find ourselves acting in ways we don't understand. Close quote. I thought this was the nub of it, really. Uh, and maybe it's certainly why I'm still allured by the talking cure. Um, what are your thoughts on on, on this? How, how important is, is storytelling to our ability to function, to keep on going in the face of horror and despair? Stephen Gross is a British analyst, and, and the book I was quoting from there is called The Examined Life, which is a marvelous collection of clinical vignettes. It was a bestseller here in America. I'm not sure if people remember it anymore. The book's probably 20 years old now. But yes, I, I think that a lot of the symptoms we suffer from, depression and anxiety and negative self-image and, and, and a loss of belief in our own effectiveness, come when we forget that we are telling a story and we believe that we're simply describing reality. We, we say these things about ourselves, about things we regret or things we believe we're not good at or failures we may have had, and that becomes the story of our lives without our understanding that it is a story and that we could tell a better and different story and a story that included all the evidence, including the good experiences that we've had and and the things, the ways in which we've succeeded. So I think embracing narrative can be a way of escaping these self-fulfilling prophecies. If we believe that we're unlovable and unattractive, we will make it so unconsciously we will behave in ways that drive others away and that frustrate our desires if we can embrace the idea that the story can be different that we can select different facts or tell it in a different way i think it's liberating and i think we can open up our experience to new interpretations and maybe to a more effective more gratifying way of being in the world
that's Gross's idea, I think. Well, I think maybe that, that that's a very apt way to, to, to end this interview. As, as Sadly, we're out of time. I think that idea about storytelling is is, is so important to, 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 to us. And I think, um, yeah, I think we need to give it a little bit more weight in our lives, you know, the way we, we approach uh, how we think about uh, our own situation. Yeah, if we can couch it in a... Uh, in a in a story that helps us deal with uh, deal with the sorrows, I think uh, I think that could really help. Um, before we wrap up, I'd, I'd love to know if you're a Frasier fan because uh, both both John and I we're, we're we're fans of the sitcom and we've actually started watching the uh, the new the new season, which I'm I don't know I'm a bit lukewarm on at the moment, but I've only seen the first episode. So, well, I loved Frasier in its in its first incarnation. I, I haven't seen the new version. I mean, Kelsey Grammer is is a very appealing performer. I, his life off screen has has been a has not been an easy one. Um, Boo, and, booze I understand he, and playmates. Yes, I mean, <laughs> look if if you're going to have shortcomings, those would be the ones I recommend. Certainly, uh, <laughs> you know, you're getting at least you're getting good value for money with booze and playmates, right? Uh, but I haven't I haven't seen the new version. I'm I'm interested. I don't know if it's on Netflix or where, where I would find Plus. it. But yes. Paramount Plus. Okay, so not easy to find, but yes, I loved the I loved the show the first time around. Well, we d- we do have a final question that we ask all of our guests, and we'd like to know what you're reading right now. So I've agreed. I'm not uh, I'm not quite done with psychoanalysis. Apparently, I agreed to write an essay for a magazine called The Smart Set, called Janet Malcolm and the Culture of Psychoanalysis. I don't know how many of your readers would remember Janet Malcolm, who was a uh, New Yorker writer who died about a year ago actually. She wrote about analysis often, a couple of books about psychoanalysis, and psychoanalytic concepts are threaded through all of her marvelous work. And so the essay is about trying to use psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic concepts as a way of unlocking the meaning and purpose of her work. So I'm going back over, she published probably 18 or 20 books in her life. I'm going back through her work and and, and making notes making notes for that essay. So yes, it's a big stack of, of Janet Malcolm on my side table right now. Fantastic. We look forward to, to reading that and, and I'm sure that'll send me down a similar rabbit hole as your writing tends to do. <laughs> well, I recommend Janet Malcolm, whether people are interested in psychoanalysis or not. She's a, she's a marvelous writer and uh, her books are, are short and accept, accessible, but, but very sharp, very intelligent and, um, I think people would would be pleased if they picked her up. Well, just just before we wrap, uh, it, we are coming up to the the Christmas season. Have you put aside anything to read over this over the over the holidays? Something something big and scary. I don't know if I've picked up anything big and scary. I always I'm one of these people that goes on Amazon and in a flurry I order four or five books, and by the time they arrive, I I can't remember what the original impulse was for the purchase. So I have a stack of things. I don't know. I would like to read more fiction. I feel that American fiction is in a little bit of a dead spot right now, but I don't know whether that's true or whether I'm just not engaged enough. There's a book, not a new one, but a book by an American novelist called Colson Whitehead, who wrote about his experience trying to play professional poker. Uh, It's called The Noble Hustle. Some magazine gave him $10,000 to go down to Atlantic City and try to play in poker tournaments, and he wrote a memoir about it. That, I think that might be good fun. Great. Fantastic. Sounds interesting. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's always delightful uh, chatting with you. If, uh, if people want to find your writing, what, what, what's the best way to do that? So I do have a website. It's called jonathanclarkwriter.com. And substantially everything I've published is linked to on that site. There are also good audio versions of of some of the articles read by a uh, very talented guy named Eric Jason Martin, who's a who's a, a frequent presenter for for Amazon and and, and elsewhere. Uh, so you know that's a nice way to engage with the work, especially the longer stuff. But yes, JonathanClarkWriter.com, and and I'm happy to have people go there and and browse. That's the whole point of the site. Fantastic. Thanks so much, uh, Jonathan. And we look forward to catching up with you uh, in the new year sometime. Thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.